BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. But there must be a collective effort to recognize that the people who are afraid on the Gold Coast are no different in their fear than the people who are afraid in Lawndale. And we have to work together as a city to make sure we're addressing all of that, that all of their fears should be at our forefront. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. With us today is Cook County State's Attorney, Kim Fox. Kim, welcome. Thank you for having me back, friend. Good morning. Good morning. You are in a dogfight. Why do you think that is? You know, I think the issue of the criminal justice system is on the ballot from top to bottom. And I think that I've had an agenda that has aggressively challenged the way we've done criminal justice in Cook County for a long time. Um, and for those who want to maintain the status quo, see an opportunity you know, to take this to the people. So I'm excited about this election and the record that I've built. You pulled out of debates with Pat O'Brien. You called him Trump-like. You have commercials literally saying that. Why are you avoiding debates? Politics is a tough game. You know that. Even some of your supporters believe that, that it might have been a mistake for you not to fight for re-election by debating your opponent. Why, why, why pull out? You know, I think debates are supposed to give the public an opportunity to hear the differences between the candidates on substantive policies. And I had an opportunity to sit through a couple of editorial boards uh, with Mr. O'Brien, where he blatantly um, spoke mistruths, basically lies, and went unfact-checked. That it was really about getting out pithy sound bites versus a, a substantive debate on the issues. And I think the American people, as we've seen on the national stage and even locally, are tired of sound bites and want to know who are the candidates, what do they stand for, and what are their records. And I had not seen that based on what he was doing, which was out and out lying during the editorial boards. But that's your job, though, to correct him if you feel that he has said something that isn't true. That's what debates are about. I mean, we've seen that across the board in politics. Absolutely, Fran. But I think we also have to be honest about how these things have played out. I have debated. I have no problem standing up for myself. And you're right. These are tough uh, races. 
However, I've been a part of debates. I've been a part of these editorial boards. And it has been almost impossible because the entertainment of debates has outweighed the substance. And I believe that the people deserved more. And in the course of the last several weeks, Mr. O'Brien and myself have been able to go out and talk uninterrupted to be checked by moderators or, or journalists about what they're saying. And quite honestly, I'm still disappointed that the level of interrogation of Mr. O'Brien and his record is not the level that I think the people deserve. Well, why raise the Trump boogeyman? Why? That has nothing <laughs> to do with this race. Because Mr. O'Brien raised the Trump boogeyman. Mr. O'Brien has unapologetically run on a law and order uh, platform. Mr. O'Brien has also used the same fear-mongering rhetoric that Donald Trump uses. When Donald Trump talks to suburban voters and how he's keeping their community safe, it's the exact same rhetoric. And so it's not the Trump uh, boogeyman. This uh, Mr. O'Brien chose to run as a uh, Republican. He claims to have switched over from having been a lifelong Democrat under this president. And he has adopted the same rhetoric and substance that this president has used. So that's why it is it is what Mr. O'Brien has chosen to frame himself as. Earlier this week, downtown Alderman Brendan Riley, a lifelong Democrat, took the extraordinary step of endorsing your Republican opponent, Pat O'Brien. What's your reaction to that? How much will it hurt? I wasn't surprised by that. I believe Mr. or Alderman O'Reilly did this in the primary um, with a different opponent. I don't think it will. I think it's up to the people of Cook County to make a determination. I'm proud of the support that I have from real Democrats, from J.B. Pritzker to Mayor Lightfoot uh, to Senator Kamala Harris. And so I think he has a right to his opinion, but I'm incredibly proud of the support that I have from other lifelong true Democrats. But when I asked Brendan Riley why, he said that Chicago neighborhoods are suffering because of the failure by your office, these are his words, to aggressively prosecute gun crime and repeat violent offenders. He said that the police are arresting people for the same crimes over and over, so much so that the police call it a revolving door. He says he supports reforms that keep nonviolent offenders out of the jail system, but there need to be serious consequences for violent criminals, gun crime and repeat offenders. And when there are not, he says, what we've got is what we've gotten from your office. These are again, his words, lawlessness, more homicides and more victims. How do you respond to that? Does he have a point at all? I really wish that Alderman O'Reilly had been. It is Alderman Riley. I'm sorry, Riley. I'm sorry. Thank you. I apologize. I really wish that Alderman Riley had been engaged in what we've been doing for the last four years as we've tackled violence in all of our neighborhoods. Uh, the violence that we are talking about on the South and West sides hasn't been new, which is why we created our gun crime strategies unit. I would remind Alderman Riley to look at the data, to look at our record. Violent crime in the city of Chicago went down year over year from 2017 through the early part of this year. And I wish that he would have been a part of those conversations about how we've been addressing gun violence and criminal justice reform. His change of uh, vocalness around these issues uh, in the last several months, um, I think to his 
fellow alderman is probably disappointing when they could have used his advocacy on these issues before. But the data is clear. For the first three years of this administration, violent crime went down. And this year is a particularly violent year. This has been a year unlike any other, not just here in Chicago, but in places like New York, LA to Albuquerque, New Mexico. This is an outlier year where we really have to put all of our forces together to address what we're seeing right now. But his ward was hit with two rounds of looting that seemed to catch the city, the police off guard, huge destruction, huge lawlessness, people running into stores, grabbing arms full of merchandise. there is a perception, you must admit that, yeah. of, of people getting away with things. How do you respond to that? What do you say to the people who live in these areas that were hit, who are afraid now and maybe thinking of perhaps leaving Chicago? Well, certainly, Frank, I, I witnessed it like everyone else and was devastated and heartbroken um, to watch the city undergo what we saw. Um, We're not responsible for arrests. We as the prosecutors are, we get the cases that are brought to us by police. And I think in the swarm of everything that was happening and in the fear, there was a lot of sound bites and finger pointing. But when those cases were brought to us, when we talk about perception, we do have a responsibility to talk about reality. 90% of the cases that were brought to us for the destruction of that property were charged, and those cases are still pending. But the fact that I have to talk more about the perception and not fact tells us that something is amiss here. And I understand that fear that those residents have felt. It it goes to the point that I've made earlier. This isn't a new fear for many people in neighborhoods throughout Cook County, a fear that I've had to deal with ever since I got into office in 2016. But there must be a collective effort to recognize that the people who are afraid on the Gold Coast are no different in their fear than the people who are afraid in Lawndale. And we have to work together as a city to make sure we're addressing all of that. all of their fears should be at our forefront. But people juxtapose those scenes of people carrying out merchandise with your policy of of lowering the threshold for felony (laughs) shoplifting. And that's where there's a perception that how could she go light when look at what's going on? But Fran, that's where I think we have to have an honest conversation. The policy for retail theft went into effect in December of 2016. 2016, 2017, 18, 19, crime went down. What we saw in the city of Chicago this summer is played out in cities across the country in which I was the state's attorney. We saw those same scenes in LA, in New York. We saw those same scenes. I understand the angst and fear, but we cannot and we owe it to the public to not overly simplify what has happened in our streets over the last several months. It is tempting. It is easy. It is pithy to say, well, this must be correlated to that. If we oversimplify what we have seen this year and then create policy tailored to just that, we're going to do what we're doing right now is look at policies from 30 years ago and try to undo the harm. 
I understand the fear. It is real. But I also have to remind people to look at the facts and not simply look for the easiest answer in the moment. Is there anything that you will modify and change about your policies in a second term to adjust to this? You know, certainly we are looking at how we handle cases, how they come through, how we work with law enforcement. Are there state laws on the books um, that need to be changed? We are absolutely looking at all of it. But I will go back to what we saw this summer was not retail theft. Retail theft is shoplifting. It's going into a store and taking something out while that store is open. What we saw this summer, what we call burglaries, we saw people breaking and entering into a place and taking, as you said, armfuls of things out. 90 plus percent of those cases have been charged and are currently pending. And so I think it's really important, and I, I will sound like a broken record, that we don't conflate um, cases, that we don't like just interchange words because that is where the fear comes from. That is where people get excited because they will believe that it was a retail theft policy when we're talking about burglaries. But might you raise that threshold back to what it was to a thousand uh, to three hundred dollars? I mean, lower it again. You know, we're looking at it. We're also looking at the state uh, legislature who is looking at raising a threshold across the state. I remind people, Illinois has one of the lowest thresholds for retail theft in the country. 47 other states have a higher threshold. Uh, in Wisconsin, it's $2,000. In Minnesota, it's $1,000. Indiana, Iowa, Missouri all have higher thresholds. And so those are things that the state legislature I know is looking at. I've been in conversations with the Illinois Retail Merchants Association about what a state law change would look at. So all things are on the table. Might you go back to 300 or 500 or something in the middle even? You know, Frank, we're going to look at all of it, but I, we're wedded to research and data. And the data has shown us that the felony threshold level in Illinois at $300, again, where 47 other states have higher thresholds. And I have to remind you, when I say Wisconsin has $2,000, they also don't have the same level of violence that we have here in Chicago. The changing of the threshold wasn't simply because I don't take these cases seriously. We absolutely do. But we were spending more of our resources, Fran, going after low-level retail theft than we were on gun cases. The number one referred case for prosecution in 2016, before anything we saw this year, was retail theft. Not guns, not shootings. And that was a year we had over 760 murders, over 4,000 shootings. How do I tell the people living throughout this county that we spent more of our time chasing low-level retail theft that could be handled as a misdemeanor than guns? And the truth is, in 2017, 18, 19, and this year, right now, the number one referred prosecution in our office is guns, guns, guns. In August, a 32-year-old mom of two who worked at a Walgreens in Wicker Park was stabbed to death. And your opponent, Pat O'Brien, blamed you. O'Brien said then that the 18-year-old Sincere Williams, who's been charged with that murder, was arrested in May and charged as a juvenile in a smash-and-grab burglary at a Melrose Park gun shop and that he was released from electronic monitoring just two days before the killing. What do you say about that? 
I say I think it's really unfortunate. And when you ask me why I compare him to Donald Trump, this is why I was not. We don't make decisions about who's on electronic monitoring. Um, That death is horrifying. And we will work every day in our office to make sure that there's justice uh, brought to this family. But to use such rhetoric and again, to suggest um, that I was involved in how in this woman's murder um, is beneath Mr. O'Brien. But again, this is someone for him who was in the state's attorney's office uh, for many years, who personally wrongfully convicted four teenagers. And when you question him about it, will say the system failed. There's no personal accountability for his role in that. But when he knows rightfully that we had no decision in how that person was released from electronic monitoring wants to hold me personally accountable. The people deserve better than that. And certainly, again, it shows and demonstrates the character of Mr. O'Brien, who has a real record of saying and doing anything to win, particularly related to our justice system. You have zeroed in on the wrongful convictions, and he was the head of criminal prosecutions for the state's attorney's office. You have particularly highlighted the Lori Rossetti case, that kidnapping and murder, where four men were exonerated uh, 10 years later after the advent of DNA testings. Is it really fair to blame him when DNA testing came along so many years later And he says he relied on confessions at the time and and that the cases went through three juries that found these men guilty in an appeals process that sustained those convictions. Absolutely. Friend, we get cases all the time where we have to examine how confessions are made. This isn't just a DNA issue. When people talk about the John Burge era and the torture that those men went through, they were then presented to prosecutors who have a responsibility to interrogate everything. That this wasn't just the DNA um, exonerated them. We have a history in Cook County. And when people ask me this, it, it surprises me. Is it fair to go back? We have paid almost $100 million in misconduct cases. We have, were dubbed the false confession, false confession capital of the United States. There's a reason that you get that way when you ignore the signs that are in front of you. And it would be one thing if Mr. O'Brien just had this one case. A review of his record were 27 cases in which he oversaw the Criminal Prosecutions Bureau that were later Um, had those people exonerated. And so, yes, the Rossetti Four are but four people in addition to 27 others. And I don't think that as a county that is labored under a perception, as you said earlier, of having a criminal justice system where anything goes, and we know it, to suggest that we should not interrogate Mr. O'Brien on how that happened. And especially today, when I hear him saying things that are absolutely not true for purposes of a victory, I cannot help but go back to seeing how he had done that before and the cost that it had, not just for those four men who went to prison for a crime they didn't commit, but to the Rossetti family who believed that the killer of their daughters were in prison when in fact he was allowed to roam free. So if we elect Pat O'Brien state's attorney, what's going to happen in your mind? I think I think we go back to where we were before. 
And I remind people that we have to which remember, is what, which is what, which was an era, Fran. He was in office in 1990, 91, when we had 900 plus homicides. This person who was saying that you know, his his ways will make us safer. There was an era in our in our time in Cook County in Chicago where we had 900 plus homicides, where we were wrongfully convicting uh, people, where police misconduct and torture were happening regularly. John Burge wasn't a prosecutor. They relied on prosecutors continue this going. So we will go back to an era where anything goes, and we cannot afford that. It is not a Kim Fox assessment of where our, we were in our history. It is the reason that we teach about police torture in our classrooms now as a result of the settlements. It's the reason we don't have the death penalty in Illinois anymore. Mr. O'Brien was front and center in that era. And I believe he believes that that's where we should be. The FOP gave Pat O'Brien their maximum contribution of about $58,000. They are dedicated to defeating you. They're going door to door. John Catanzara said it has nothing to do with the Jesse Smollett case. It's about ending what he calls lawlessness in Chicago and about removing a state's attorney, he says, with a social agenda who has made the city a dangerous place to live, work, visit, and go by going too easy on criminals. And what is behind that, do you think? You know, listen, the, uh, to go back to my original point, the uh, FOP has also endorsed Donald Trump and they believe in Donald Trump and Pat O'Brien's vision for what criminal justice looks like. I don't for a moment forget how I grew up in this city in one of the toughest public housing projects um, in the country of Cabrini Green. And what I recognize when people throw out the word social agenda, that if we're gonna do anything to deal with the violence in our communities, we have to take a broad holistic view because otherwise, the fear and angst that we saw this summer as people took to the streets and a segment of them then went and destroyed property is going to continue to cycle if we don't address the issues that are underlying all of this. And so I have tremendous respect for the men and women of Chicago Police Department who work with us day in and day out uh, to address violence in our communities. Um, and I find that this FOP under this leadership who resist any and all efforts for reform, um, troubling. I find it also troubling that Mr. O'Brien would take their money knowing that we're under a federal consent decree, knowing that we have a responsibility to hold them accountable and that they are endorsing him because they believe that he won't do it. What, what's wrong with him taking their money? I think there's a conflict, Fran. I think there's an absolute conflict of interest that, again, for someone who worked in the office before and clearly didn't interrogate how cases were being brought to him to ensure that we weren't getting false confessions, to be able to prosecute them, to be able to say, this isn't a good case. One of the things I hear repeatedly from Mr. O'Brien is, you know, she's too discerning about what cases are charged because I don't believe in wrongfully prosecuting people. We just dropped a case a few months ago where the police brought us uh, information and it took us a while to realize we may have had the wrong people and to be able to drop that case. Mr. O'Brien is definitely against that because he believes that he should be in lockstep with the police. We should work with them, but we are also a check and he can't do that. And I think once you have their money, the ability to be able to hold them accountable diminishes. 
You have robocalls this week from Kamala Harris, the vice presidential uh, nominee with Joe Biden. Why should she get involved in a Cook County state's attorney's race? What, why should we listen to her? Well, one, she was involved in a primary, and I was very honored to have her support uh, back in the primary. Um, Senator Harris is someone who has worked as a prosecutor. She knows firsthand what it's like to lead a, a prosecutor's office. Um, she's also been an attorney general, so she understands it from the state level. Um, and the work that she's doing on Capitol Hill related to criminal justice reform. And so in addition to those things, I know Senator Harris personally. This is someone who has mentored me over the course of the last four years and who stands poised uh, to be the next vice president of the United States. So I would suggest uh, that she has a lot to offer to this conversation, both substantively and personally. Did you ever have any communication with Kamala Harris in connection with the Jesse Smollett case? Come on, Fran. No, not at all. Never, not a text, not a phone call, nothing, not an email, nothing, nothing at all. Fran, no. The last time you were on this show, you dismissed as BS the media's year long obsession with the Smollett case. But that was before Special Prosecutor Dan Webb further embarrassed you by reindicting Smollett and issuing a report that said your office botched the case and even lied about it. Instead of blaming your critics, why not tell us right now what you believe you might have done wrong in that case and what you might do differently if you had it to do all over again or if something like this happens again, if that's even possible. And Fred, I want to be clear, Jesse Smollett was already reindicted when I was on your show previously. And I also want to be clear that after a year-long interrogation by the special prosecutor, he found no outside influence. He found that I was not involved in the decision-making in that case. And so what I'm telling you is I'm, I'm grateful that we've been able to have a full, transparent accounting of what happened with that case. And again, would really hope, and it's not a criticism of critics, I think the people deserve to know how I handled that case, is serious an interrogation of someone who has wrongfully convicted 27 other people. Okay, but let's talk about Smollett. What do you think you did wrong there? Look, I think we could have been more transparent in the way that we handled that case. So that people understood that whatever decisions were being made for him was not different than a decision that we would make for someone who is similarly situated. So we could have communicated stronger. We could have been more transparent in how we handled that case, given the intense public interest in it. And I have said all along, I knew all along I wasn't involved in the decision making in that case and that there was no outside influence. And I think there was a lot of attention. I think much like the question that preceded this about who contacted me about what happened. Dan Webb said no one outside influenced this case. But I do want to go back to when you ask me, is it important to look back at Mr. O'Brien's history and the explanations that he gave? I really wish that we would do the same as we've done to me, interrogate the history of the people who are running for this office and the wrongful convictions associated with it. You have opened a grand jury investigation into the drinking and driving incident that got 
former Chicago police superintendent Eddie Johnson fired. What exactly are you looking at? Are you looking at alleged destruction of evidence by Johnson and his former driver, Cynthia Donald, her charges of sexual harassment, intimidation, and even rape, the police cover up? What part of it? I can't discuss uh, a, a pending grand jury investigation. Well, are we likely to see charges there? I can't discuss the pending grand jury investigation. David Brown, the police superintendent, and his quote about no consequences is featured in an O'Brien campaign commercial. Um, he says there are zero consequences for some of the gun arrests, allowing the masterminds behind gang and gun violence to recycle back to the streets. Is that disingenuous of O'Brien to use David Brown in a commercial and his quote, he, those are public comments that were made. I would certainly say that Superintendent Brown has had a really challenging year since he got here in April and was incredibly frustrated uh, by all of the things that were happening at once. But I go back to you know, looking at the record and looking at the data. Uh, and I've been able to have press conferences in it with Superintendent Brown and the mayor where our data has not been refuted where they've not come back to say that when we say that those cases are being prosecuted or show them our records on guns, where they've disputed that. And so I understood his frustration at the time. And Mr. O'Brien is trying to do whatever it takes to win, um, even exploiting the public words of Superintendent Brown. The mayor is eliminating hundreds of police vacancies in her pandemic budget, but she has resisted efforts to defund the police. Is she doing enough to respond to the demands of the, the reform movement across the country that has followed the death of George Floyd? You know, I think the mayor has had to, over the course of the last several months, listen to a lot of constituency activists, advocates, um, the police department, aldermen, about what is the best course for Chicago. Um, that this is not a cookie cutter approach when we use these uh, these terms. Um, and I think she'll have to answer for that, you know, looking at the budget and looking at what the priorities are. Um, but I feel that there has been a lot of debate, a lot of engagement. Um, and what will ultimately come with this budget, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But I think we have to take an approach that will work uh, for Chicago. But would you like to see her take more of the police budget away and put it towards some of these social programs as the protesters demand? I would love to see greater investment in crime prevention, um, whether that's mental health, substance use disorder, trauma uh, care for young people who live in neighborhoods that are impacted by violence. Where that money comes from, you know, will be a balancing act that the mayor and the aldermen will have to make. But I will say, even before this year, um, there has been needing, we have needed to make those investments uh, long ago. And so I, I hope that the conversations will, will bear fruit. Um, but it is not for me to say where that money should come from. I believe that we need that money uh, to address long-term violence. She's devoting $16.5 million to violence prevention. The critics say we need at least $50 million. Should she be doing more there? 
I think we should dedicate the money and the resources that are necessary. And again, I'm not in a position to examine the city's budget uh, to say what's available, but I do know a city of this size needs considerable resources to address this issue. She's forging ahead with the police academy. She wants to make the $95 million plan that Rahm Emanuel had bigger and better. Is she making a mistake there? This has also become a focal point for the protesters. You know, again, I'm not in the position to know what the mayor is using to evaluate her decision making related to the police academy. My role as a prosecutor um, is to address cases that come to us. I will reiterate that I do think it is imperative that we invest resources and money um, in violence prevention, long term violence prevention um, moving forward. And on a personal note, Kim, your husband's cancer diagnosis, this happened right as you were entering this final stretch of the campaign. Uh, how have you managed to keep campaigning in the middle of a very difficult fight that he has? Um, it's been incredibly difficult. I, I had to make the call uh, to take six weeks off of the campaign trail, more like four or five uh, to care for him full time, um, while at the same time, uh, remote uh, learning for four teenage girls at home. Uh, and I'm grateful that, you know, I had the opportunity to do that. And for me, my family was absolutely my top priority during that time period. And so this has been an incredibly difficult campaign, uh, not because of the issues I, I, I I'm I'm well versed in the issues. You, you talk about campaigns being tough. Um, there's actually been nothing tougher for me um, than to have to walk my husband and watch my children um, watch him be ill. But I'm grateful uh, that he is well, uh, that he is cancer free um, and we're able to to move on with our lives um, post cancer. At any point, did you think about saying I can't do both of these? <laughs> yes, uh, all the way through. I, I think it, it is the challenge of doing this work. And again, I can only do it from the vantage point of being a, a, a wife and a mother, a woman, um, where we try to balance um, all things at once. You know, can, can we do it all? And I realized for a period during the summer uh, that sometimes we can't have it all. And the priority for me was my family. And with the support of my family, my friends, um, my supporters and donors um, to give me the space to be able to do that allowed me to come back and do this work and do it with the vigor that's required to win. Did your mentor, county board president and Democratic Party chairman, Tony Preckwinkle, make a mistake in engineering uh, the vote to dump Judge Tuman? who ordered the special prosecutor in the Smollett case. It looked to Mayor Lightfoot and a lot of people like retaliation. Yeah, I mean, I don't have a dog in that fight. You know, certainly it I'm raises sure you do. Sure you do, because it's for you that people think that Preckwinkle did this. Yeah. yeah, I'm not involved in a Democratic Party politics. And so I recognize, again, as we talk about perception and reality, had nothing to do with that decision making and certainly believe that people should evaluate that on its own merits. Um, Judge Tuman ordered, you know, a review of this case. I said I was open to a review. 
um, the findings were made. And so for this to continue to be an issue for me um, has been disappointing, but it was not my dog in that fight. So you wish you hadn't done it, maybe. It, it created a problem for you, right? Yeah. I, I can't speak to how the Democratic Party chose to decide what judges they were going to support or not support. And I will assume that they made that decision based on everything that was presented to them, um, absent any other motives. That's but my assumption. it created a problem for you, certainly. <laughs> I'm on a campaign trail. Anything and everything um, is is subject to <laughs> is subject to uh, be used, and so I, I recognize that anything and everything that happens um, between now and November third uh, creates political opportunity. Kim Fox, thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck in the final days. Have you thought about what you'll do if you don't make it? No, I uh, I'm looking forward to being. <laughs> past November 3rd. And, you know, my goal uh, is to continue to serve the people of Cook County. All right. The very best of luck to you and best of health to your husband as well. And we'll see you all next week. Mm -hmm.